listening to episode 70 of the Daily Growth Discipleship Podcast. I'm Chris Lambert. And I'm Josh Havens. And we're on a journey to learn what it means to live a lifestyle of discipleship. We're glad you're joining us and hope that as you set aside this time for God, that he would help you grow today in the everyday moments of life. Today, we're talking with Pastor Chris Nye. Chris is a pastor and writer living in the San Francisco Bay Area with his wife, Allison. His writing has appeared in the Washington Post, Christianity Today, Relevant Magazine, and various other publications. He's also authored two books, Distant God and Less of More, Pursuing Spiritual Abundance in a World of Never Enough. Chris currently serves as a pastor for teaching and leadership development at Awakening Church in the Silicon Valley. Every decision we make is motivated by some desire that we have. And for most of us in the U.S., that means a desire for more. We want more money, a larger house, more safety, more happiness, and, well, just more. But when we look at Scripture, this pursuit of more may not be the way Jesus intended us to live a lifestyle of discipleship. It's difficult to read Philippians 4, where Paul tells about his secret of contentment And at the same time, think American capitalism and consumerism are what Paul's lifestyle would look like. In this episode, Chris Nye talks about what he's finding to be valuable for a lifestyle of discipleship, while at the same time living in a culture where there's always a pressure to consume more. It could be that less of more is a better way to be more like Jesus. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, guys. Good to be with you. Yeah, really excited to have you on uh, talking to you today about your book, Less of More, Pursuing Spiritual Abundance in a World of Never Enough. Um, This has been a conversation around this topic, this this idea of, uh, well, and I like, I really do like your title, Less of More, because it makes you think. But um, in fact, I asked some of someone recently, or maybe it's not so recent on our podcast about (laughs) some of these issues, right, that we are so absorbed with wanting more, 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 more. Uh, maybe that's the wrong uh, way of going about it. And then your book popped up on my uh, my computer screen, and I was like, "That's a God ordained thing, right there." So let's <laughs> let's let's figure this thing out. So um, I guess we'll just we'll dive in and we'll start with why did you write this book? Um, less of more. Yeah, I, um, I I guess like you have been troubled a little bit with the focus of accumulation in American culture and particularly um, how it's bled into the church. And I, I, I guess the more I've thought about why I wrote the book, it's a little bit about my discomfort of like capitalistic ideology. Capitalism is good. It serves a lot of great purposes, but one of the things it does is it rewards us when we uh, make more when we grow things, when we expand enterprises. And the more I thought about that connected to the biblical narrative and some of even Jesus's own life, the more I got kind of uncomfortable with how the church was so cozy with that as a, uh, as a ideology. And so the book I think started maybe as like a more of a cultural critique, but kind of ballooned into a little bit of like, theologically thinking about accumulation. I think that's the main word that has bothered me. And all of my like writing and stuff is always rooted in a kind of uh, pastoral ministry. I've been a pastor for over a decade. And so I was working at the time 
and I write about this in the book a little bit, but I was working uh, in the inner city of San Francisco in the poorest neighborhood called the Tenderloin and then was living in the Silicon Valley next to, you know, Facebook and Google and, and the disparity struck me so deeply just taking the train in every day into the city uh, that I was realizing the same uh, things that were haunting uh, the impoverished communities in San Francisco were being rewarded in the Silicon Valley. And um, that as a pastor became interesting, but also uh, a little uh, demoralizing, you know? So I wanted to write my way out of it. And that's the book uh, a little bit is like going through that journey. Yeah, that's a good. Uh, that's a good observation. I think one of the things that we. St- I'll bring up the election just because. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was recent history. Uh, I think one of the things that Christians struggle with is seeing some of the the things that a certain party wants to do to protect the the disenfranchised, the impoverished, and things that other party the other party wants to do that wants to uh, really support a, a thriving economy through giving benefits to. A certain group of people and yeah. we struggle with that because we want to help the poor we want to do these things but at the mm-hmm. same time like you've mentioned and observed as the church we get real cozy with capitalism which i think at that time at times causes those kind of problems and we don't always think through that well it's like our professor said on one of our recent podcasts right capitalism and socialism are not God made things. These yeah, are these human are, in, human yeah, inventions. These are human inventions, and and we do make a mistake. Uh, so we're in the Midwest, right? A lot more of uh, our Christian circle leans a lot more conservative yeah. and more towards that capitalistic uh, uh, tendencies. I I take it from you living out in California in Silicon Valley, probably leaning a lot more towards the the left and towards that. I think what we have to get on board with though is um, like as Christians is that these issues matter. Like first and foremost. Right. And that's what I love about your book is you do a really good job of talking about, um, you know, like, again, you're going into these areas and you're seeing the poverty, you're seeing the despair. um, And yet there's an underlying issue that's affecting both groups of people, both the ultra rich and the ultra poor. Can you talk about that uh, for example? A, a minute, because I think getting at these underlying roots is going to really help us as we get into. And then I, th- I really want to ask some of these, I think, tough questions for us to wrestle with. Again, you address them as to like, well, wait a second, shouldn't we grow because a better capitalistic economy is better for even the most marginalized poor and and those kinds of uh, uh, questions? But let's start with that. what's at the root. What's really affecting both of these groups of people? Yeah. I mean, first off, you're you're absolutely right that capitalism and socialism have these human components to them. And um, just real fast on that, the the best treat uh, treatment of that is in Martin Luther King Jr.'s sermon collection, um, where he, he he draws the line of where the kingdom of God rebukes basically both of both of those structures and ushers in a kind of generous. Uh, explanation for like spiritual and social justice. So a quick plug to read more MLK sermons, but um, yeah, the, the root, and this is actually Martin Luther King Jr. Got at this too. The the root for me uh, is pride and greed, right? That that's a little bit of like Augustine and a little bit of like more of the Greek church fathers, right? The, the, the Greek church fathers were like a little bit more uh, obsessed with with greed and, and Augustine was a little bit more obsessed with pride. I think both of those 
pride and greed are the roots of many kinds of our sin. And I think, you know, takes us back to Genesis three and some of scripture's great wisdom around what it means to reject God. Greed being the, the, um, the belief that we are owed something um, and that we have, we have the right to take it. Um, and pride being the overinflated ego that believes ourselves to be equal with God or greater than God, even um, those two predominant lies I would say is kind of at the root of a lot of the hunger for uh, accumulation, the disregard for the people that you harm when you accumulate more and more and more, um, and, and the kind of unawareness that you have when you do have a lot of things with scripture talks a ton of about, about the blindness that riches bring. Um, and not just, by the way, you know, I'm, I'm very careful in the book to not just talk about money. Um, because in my experience, greed is a, um, posture of the heart that's transmitted between rich and poor, uh, because it's this desire for more and this desire that you deserve more. Uh, I've met just as many poor people, as I've met rich people who have that in themselves. Um, I think that rich people just tend to be a little bit more blind to it. And then I think that poverty just opens your eyes to humility a little bit quicker. I think Jesus would kind of say with blessed are the poor, there's a door open to the poor, you know, how it's so hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. These comments that he makes, I see, I see kind of a door open for the poor to see a little bit more clearly their own sin, their own folly, their own kind of pain. But yeah, those two roots to me uh, seem to be what Jesus is trying to root out of me. Um, just as a pastor, as a young leader, like I see those two things being some of my greater enemies that God thinks he, if he would target those in my heart, renew them through his Holy Spirit, I would become a more humble and helpful pastor, husband, father, all of the different roles that I play. And so I think at the heart of some of the issues might be those two words. So I, I used to say this a lot more and I say, but I had this, uh, little idiom, I guess, where I would say, uh, God has blessed some people to be rich and other people to be poor. I have definitely not yet been blessed to be rich. And so, um, as of yet, because again, I do, th I think you're right. There are certain advantages and disadvantages that come, uh, with, with each position. Um, and I've, even though I'm not blessed with the, the wealth and the riches, I still certainly have to fight that in my heart to stop wanting more. In fact, it was really some exposure to a, uh, a guy who lives here in Springfield who runs uh, Askinosie's Chocolate. I got to get him on the, the podcast one day, but I was reading his book. Some of the best chocolate, by the way, guys, if you want to uh, check it out. But um, he... A lot of his story has to do with visiting a Benedictine monastery here in Missouri um, where he learned, again, uh, this principle of enough, right? So he runs this business and they have certain projections uh, for the year. And when they hit them, they stop. They just stop. Wow. wow. And I was like, yeah, exactly. Wow. What? And they do all kinds of amazing charitable work and um, they, they, they partner with local farmers to, uh, you know, uh, grow the uh, cocos and they do amazing feeding programs in Africa and in South America. And, and like you, you told the story in the book, and I think this is where we're ultimately going to get up to is this is the problem that we have to come up against. 
Wouldn't it be amazing if he just said, no, 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 we're going to grow. We're going to create a Willy Wonka-style chocolate factory. We're going to pump out more chocolate than anybody else in the world so that we can continue to do more and more and more. It's going to feed everybody. It's going to help all the farmers. What is wrong with that image, and why shouldn't that be the thing that we pursue? Because, again, this is at the heart of capitalism, is that that's where our this is where our thought process goes. Why is that such a detrimental thought process for us to have as Christians? I think because it rejects the uh, it rejects what it means to be a human being, which is to be a limited created being to, to have boundaries around your existence, which God created for us in the garden. Um, absolutely continued. And even I would argue, um, put firmer boundaries around his people, Israel, uh, put borders, limits, boundaries, laws, structure, um, to, to remind them that they are created beings, you know, and they don't have limitless opportunity. He gave them a specific land, a specific law to abide by that land. And those laws were were limited your ability to accumulate things. You had to give things away. The year of Jubilee caused you to hit almost reset on nearly everything you owned. Um, an inspection of the Old Testament ethics, which uh, Christopher J.H. Wright is the best at. There. He has a book called Old Testament Ethics and the People of God. And in there, his, his, uh, he doesn't really have one underlying thesis, but he goes through the categories of laws that God gave his people. And in them, you don't see any route uh, that would reflect any kind of American Western late capitalism. Because to your point of, of the chocolate maker in the book, I tell the story of a taqueria in my neighborhood that just shut down for two weeks. You know, and they uh, will randomly close because they they allow they are uh, allowing themselves to have time with their family, and they are telling the world we would rather have time with our family than make more money. So, so the 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 scary part for us as Americans is that means we will not be as successful as we want to be but it does mean we might know God and know ourselves uh, all, all the more. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, one, one of the arguments I'm trying to make in the book is to help people understand their, their limits and their boundaries are a great gift um, that when explored and when embraced, uh, remind us of who God is. And I think that's why Jesus says, again, some of those harsh, harsh words, uh, that it's really, really hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. All he is saying there is the access to the space that God operates is limited when we accumulate uh, more material wealth. And I I think that some of the early church would be shocked at the way that we view uh, and have compensated, you know, and kind of like made these compromises around some of these issues. Um, And, uh, and I don't think this is just like, yeah, it should be like Christian businesses, you know, or whatever. I, I legitimately believe here in the Silicon Valley, if some of these things were adopted, we would have a safer world. Um, I, I think if, if Twitter decided to just not exist uh, for every election year, they just said, we're just going to shut down because it becomes harmful. Facebook, it becomes a harmful environment where misinformation is spread and uh, we, we aren't able to uh, harness it that well. So we're just going to shut down for an entire election year. 
they would lose profits, they would lose um, influence, they would lose prestige and stature, and they would lose political um, gainsmanship. Uh, but could they be then reminded of their own createdness uh, in there? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting idea. Well, that's why one of the things that we like to to really focus on is one of the key things that we have to understand in creating a lifestyle lifestyle of discipleship is identity. And you mentioned yeah. the word createdness. I think that's another word for identity. Yeah. If you're if you're operating from a perspective that says, I have to be something in the world mm-hmm. and I have to do that by making the most money, by being the most successful, whatever that looks like, your identity, what you think your identity is, is wrapped up in that. And and we have this defense mechanism as human beings where if our identity comes under threat, we do certain things to protect that. And so if our identity is in how much money we make, if that come, if that becomes threatened, we try to avoid it. Mm -hmm. Whereas if our createdness is in who we are as children of God, then a threat to our income isn't viewed the same way as if our identity is wrapped up in that. Yeah, yeah let, let me actually build on that a little bit because I think uh, our church here in the Silicon Valley is like a lot of young people. And I think one thing I'm noticing is, is the conversation about making money is, is is happening less and less and less. And so your point about like your identity be found in your riches, I, I think in the next generation, like, I don't know what you guys think about this, but like, I, I don't think that there is that much of a focus on uh, monetarily like building yourself up. Yeah. Right. It, yeah. It's actually more about following my passion, doing what I love, uh, expressing myself through the job that I have. It tells my friends something about my identity. And I actually think that might be more dangerous than identifying yourself as how much money you make. Um, it definitely comes with its own problems. Yeah. yeah. It comes with its own set of problems. And and even not even take take aside career and just put like the way we interact with each other on social media and and the way that we profiteer off of it through our own personal profiles i think that's just as dangerous to the identity piece that you guys do your work with um and, and is something that i see creeping on the horizon i don't know you guys see that a little bit like in yeah. some of your discipleship work no i th- i think it's a great point and so let's let's actually explore that because i'm i don't think i've seen how dangerous it i mean i do think it has some dangers i would never have said though that it's more dangerous so oh, that's yeah. a really intriguing idea and, and and i that i think it's worth exploring um i will make because i i made this note earlier i think i think fundamentally though about like the money and then what we're going to talk about because i again social media is a big one is it's it's causing us to redefine what we view as success and again yeah. so like here we would say Success means following Jesus faithfully, right? Mm-hmm. And then we have to flesh that out. And so, like, if that becomes our new benchmark for success, the thing in which we're trying to fundamentally go after, it, it, it that is going to change us because our entire life then becomes oriented around that. Like right now, to your point, and maybe this is more of your point with social media, because I'd see the social media thing as a, as a bigger problem, right? It likes the big thumbs up. That's the new currency that more millennials and Gen Zs yeah. um, in the next generations are going to want more of is that kind of a status thing. Um, it, so is, is that what you're is that what you're kind of talking about a little bit more with the, the need for a job and expressing yourself? Yeah, I would I would even take it a step further because um, 
I think it's just the interior desire I see in the next generation to, to prove themselves in some way. Um, and to project that to the world in any way, it doesn't matter if it's on social media or not. So what, what I mean is this is coming from a little bit of this writer, Gia Tolentino um, in the New Yorker. She has this new collection of essays called trick mirror. And, and in it, she talks about the internet providing an opportunity for people to appear moral and how the appearance of morality is more important than moral action. And I think that's actually what I, I'm starting to see in this generation and something I'm interested in writing about a little bit more. I, I, I touch on it in the book in the chapter on fame um, because, because I don't think it's everybody's desire to be famous, but fame is the, is the desire I write about in the book. It's like the desire to be acknowledged for the work that you've done on a large scale. Yeah. And I think that our generation and younger, I'm a millennial, uh, and the Gen, the Gen Zs below me, I really think they, they want the recognition for believing the right things and articulating right moral values and beliefs about politics and about social justice or about whatever. And they want to at least appear that way um, without actually even having the accountability within community to act out those morals. Okay. So mm. I know I'm using a lot of theoretical language, but to to project, uh, uh, you know, beliefs about racial justice, which I wholeheartedly agree, does not mean that you are fighting for racial justice. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. For you to posit particular political opinions that line up with your peer group does not mean that you will actually act justly in your political environments through voting, protesting, boycotts, whatever it is that we do. That's the actual work. Yeah. But there's a bifurcation in this age with the internet between actual, you know, moral action, uh, and justice, the, what the Bible would call justice, um, and the appearance of justice. And that's where mm -hmm. I think, uh, that is where we're getting our identity is like this, this, this twisted form of identity that's helping people understand this is who I am. However we say it, However we say it, this is who I am, um, without actually being accountable to it, which I think only happens in community. You know, you know I, I do see a common thread, though. If we look at the way people who pursue success through wealth, uh, what they're trying to go about doing, uh, isn't it really the same thing? Aren't they trying to achieve fame, in a sense, among their peers? It's just that the standard for what we consider socially acceptable, uh, what, particularly baby boomers and, and those who came right after the Great Depression considered successful, was getting a lot of money, yeah, owning a lot of businesses. And that meant fame and notoriety within your peer group. And so I, I think as, as Gen Xers and millennials, we tend to, like, we're coming down off of the generation who really believed in, yes. in, in that. And for us, it's a, it, it's a little foreign, but I think there's still a lot of ambition in us toward that direction. Um, well, it showed that they were doing something right. If you could yeah. make a lot of money, you were doing the thing it, that was it's, right. It's hard evidence right in front. That's you can, right. You can touch it. That's right. If you post something on social media, regardless of whether you act on that thing, you have shown the world that you were doing something right. And I, yeah. I guess maybe to your point, that's the more dangerous side of it is because not everybody is going to make a lot of money. Anybody can post on social media. Right. 
Right. And so it's more readily available. Yes. And I would say that uh, the desire to make money, um, what I see in older generations was a desire for security because the generations before them lacked that very thing. They didn't have a secure and safe life between the two world wars and the great depression life was not secure and life was not safe mm-hmm. nuclear threats happening in the late fifties uh, social unrest in the sixties to, to create for yourself a safe and secure life was paramount. Right. Um, and I, I think today there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a similar uh, vibe, especially if those who were born after the year 2000, 2001, the dawn of the internet and the rise of, uh, you know, uh, global terrorism, there's a desire to, to remain safe, but the safety is found in the ability to, again, project myself as a kind of person that the community I'm with, I am in accepts. So if I'm in a more liberal community, I'm going to project my life to be safe so I don't get canceled. So I don't have this, mm. you know, uh, community, uh, I want, I just, yeah. I want to yeah, fit in good. and be safe with that community. Uh, ideologically, not necessarily yeah. monetarily. Well, so, but, but that's, that's a great point, right? So let's talk about community then, because it's not really that we're fitting into the community or, or we are creating a fake pseudo community, not a real one. And so we just, yeah. we're generating that. It's almost like, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's community pornography in a way, right? Yeah. It just is generating that feeling without any of the real substance and the intimacy and the messiness, quite frankly, that a community comes with. Yeah, th- this is um, that that's very well put. And I think that's that's a little bit of my obsession right now, actually, in like teaching and writing a little bit. I, I taught my church on this a little bit last year, but I think there is um, a, a thing that's that I, I've called um, and my one of my mentors, John Furman, uh, kind of helped me when I was talking with him about this individualized community and actual discipleship community. I know you guys do a ton of work on discipleship. Individualized community is the community exists for uh, to meet my personal goals and preferences. So soul cycle, like not to, not to harp on the like fitness people, but soul cycle mm-hmm. or CrossFit, those communities, the reason people bond there is because collectively they are um, receiving from each other the ability to, f- to fulfill individually articulated personal goals and preferences. I want to, you know, get fitter or I want to, you know, be stronger or whatever. And other communities do this, by the way, outside of the fitness community, it's just the most readily available example. But it's this idea that, and people come to church this way. I want to be a better person. I'm going to step into church and church is going to make me the better person that I believe I should be. And so all of you are here in my discipleship group to make me better. It's a setup Mm -hmm. for disaster individualized community yep. ends up, you know, shipwrecking a lot of the um, discipleship that Jesus actually wants to do. And so yep. what we teach our church is we say discipleship community is not focused around your personal goals and preferences. It's oriented around the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's the Lord. He makes commands and he has developed activity in your life through his grace uh, to uproot sin and to make you into the new human being he desires to make you. It's his call. And the community together, and this is a little Bonhoeffer stuff, if you recognize it, but like the community together uh, is, is pointing at Jesus. And the only reason you guys get together is because of Jesus, not because of personal goals and preferences, Uh, your new year's goals and your professional ambitions and your um, personal politics and opinions. Those things are actually set aside 
for the project Jesus has for you, not mm-hmm. the project you've brought into our group here. So yeah. that is incredibly difficult pastoral work. And in the Silicon Valley, very, very hard, but um, still, yeah. still worth it. <laughs> well, even that's very hard. Even, you know, I think anywhere, it's it, hard it, anywhere <laughs> in, the, in the United States, especially right. Yeah. We are so individualistic and, um, and I'll give this caveat because I've, I've had some of these conversations with people before and then they automatically retort, right? Well, whoa, 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 but, but what, it, like you have to be healthy in order to give. And so if you're oh. not healthy, then you can't contribute. And it's like, no, 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 no. That's the great thing about the grace of Jesus and, and the church as an institution. See, our, our pastor love is a big Bonhoeffer fan. And so anyway, wonderful, <laughs> many, many similarities. Um, but your needs are met through the process of coming and focusing on uh, the mission of the church and, right. and Christ himself. And so it's not that you're, you're, you throw out your needs and cause, cause there's even in the individualized church, we do that a lot too. Um, sure. Where sometimes we throw out our needs in order just to come and put on the facade. We, you know, we put on our faces and yeah. we come, we don't ask questions and, and it's like, no, 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 or no. We just give, 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 give until we're completely burnt out. And we destroy ourselves. That's right. Yeah. And, and and both of those, I think, miss the point of coming to act on this uh, this vision of of who Jesus is. Because, like, well, like you were talking about, right? In the Old Testament, the Old Testament laws are built in such a way that Israel had rest built into their normal routine. Yeah. And so, yeah. like getting burnt out and overspending, and you know coming to the end of yourself was something that uh, God actually cares about and doesn't want to happen. Yeah. And, and so that's going to be part of what it means to be a, a thriving member of the body of Christ. And yeah. i tell you what, I've learned a lot about this just in marriage. Uh, a lot of people approach marriage from the perspective of what can I, what can I get from my spouse to help me yeah. be a better person? And, and really it's about how can I trust my spouse to take care of my needs while I at the same time am taking care of their needs. Yeah. Yep. And if we approach life in the community of, of the body of Christ like that, it really becomes, uh, I mean, what's one of our, our main steps in, in creating a lifestyle of discipleship? We have to serve with purpose. Yeah. We exist in the body of Christ to serve others. And we have to in turn then trust that as we participate with Christ in that process, our needs will be taken care of just because that's who he is. That's right. I'm kind of smiling right now because I'm, I'm thinking. I joked uh, the other week after we had, we had talked to AJ Cheryl about the enneagram, and I, oh, yeah. and I, I, I had kind of made a joke. The only reason we care about learning about our spouse or anybody else's enneagram is so we can manipulate them into doing what we want, <laughs> <laughs> and that's obviously very wrong. <laughs> we learn about the enneagram so that we can better serve others and and know ourselves and all that sort of stuff. Anyway, so but I'm I'm sitting here that's smiling. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking of that, but no, that's not that's obviously not what we are supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. Um. So I, I can't help but think about like all of this comes back to these core issues, right, of of sin, our sin nature. You know, if everything was hunky dory, this wouldn't actually uh, be a problem for us. Um, talk about a little bit the difference between sin, capital S, and then sins, lowercase s, uh, because a lot of times we get these things confused. And then because I think this is a through line I really wanted to make. Uh, certain we got to in this conversation. Oh yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. Um, yeah. Just taken from um, Fleming Rutledge's book, the crucifixion. Uh, and I, I quote her in my, in my book because 
I, I seen in, in Christian circles, the misunderstanding of sin, lowercase sin being the bad moral behaviors you do. And we as pastors, myself, man, we are so guilty of like harping on those all the time and making terrible pithy examples about people cutting you off in traffic and getting mad. I mean, it, look, I've used them as much as anybody's used them. So I get it, but we have trivialized sin. We have made it about bad moral, small moral mistakes almost. Sin is not a mistake. You know, um, a lot of people say that. And in fact, public apologies, notice that word. It's all over public apologies when there's a massive moral failure. Someone will say, I made a mistake. A mistake is dropping a glass in your kitchen. You know, a mistake is when you're unloading the dishwasher, you drop a plate. Um, Adultery is not a mistake, you know. Greed is not a mistake. Pride is not a mistake. These are sins. This is sin. And as where Fleming Rutledge calls the capital S sin being the pollutive power that reigns over this world, a cosmic understanding of sin. And I found that to be so refreshing along with um, uh, planting his book uh, called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, which is the shortest book on sin that's the best book on sin. And in there, he coins the phrase, the vandalism of shalom. And I just find that vision of sin to be much more uh, helpful in this era we're in right now. I understand that we still have to take personal holiness very seriously, but we forget that the reason we make bad personal choices is because we are infected with the cancer of sin, the pollution that exists in the air of sin. We are breathing in and we are breathing out. And that's the reason we commit adultery or cheat on our businesses or cut our taxes a little bit or something to try to make us us better. Um, but it is all interconnected to what I think scripture more commonly talks about, which is the cosmic reign of sin, uh, Satan and, and death that Jesus came to defeat, to close the curtain on, to put away entirely um, and usher in his new kingdom. And so when I think about uh, the things that drive some of this book and the thinking behind this book around greed, around our hunger for accumulation and growth, around our hunger to be known and project our knownness to our friends, like that is capital S sin that we're just infected with. And I think part of the discipleship process is to point people out to the water we're swimming in and to point people out to um, some of the things we take for granted. And that's, that's a little bit what I, yeah, what I was trying to do with the book and in some, sometimes a little bit, uh, you know, maybe more crafty ways or whatever, but, but it snuck into the church around some of this stuff with, uh, with growth and accumulation and fame uh, I, I see it in me as a pastor just as much as I see it in the dude who's, who's in my community group who works for Facebook. It's not, it's not any different because I'm, I'm a pastor and he works for Facebook. The, the two of us are involved in a world that is very, very complicated, but involves a capital S sin and not just personal moral misdeeds. So that's great. And that's easy to see then how that sin spirals in our life to, accumulation of more and more and more. What is the remedy of that then? How can we, because you, you, again, you're making the, a point in the book and I loved it, right? That even though the United States in particular has got more wealth and more, more than it's, yeah. than any time in any, his, any yeah. point in history, we are yet 
more spiritually impoverished. We have higher suicide rates, higher uh, depression. Everybody's on anti-anxiety meds, on and on and on. This thing doesn't seem to be solving the problem we're trying to solve. Um, How do we get to a point then, as you say in the subtitle of your book, spiritual abundance? Um, Yeah. How does that work? Yeah. I mean, this is, this is why I wanted to write the book because I do see an anxious people and a depressed people. And to me, grace is the antidote. Grace in Jesus Christ is the antidote. And how I would frame that is when you meet Jesus Christ, there is nothing else to achieve. After meeting Jesus Christ, what else are you going to do? Mm. So I say that to people in the Silicon Valley and I have to say it like nine times (laughs) because I get it. There is a lot to do. Look, I understand our political moment is important. Our national conversations are essential. Um, This planet Uh, is under a climate crisis. Uh, We do not have peace in this world. Poverty is rampant. I get, I get it. There's so much to do. Um, But if we start with this idea that there's nothing to accomplish or succeed in because Christ has accomplished it on our behalf, Mm. we are now freed to take our local work very seriously And we're freed to contribute where we can contribute without being overwhelmed by the problems that this world we're assaulted with every morning when our phone clicks open. We're assaulted with all these issues that we are supposed to fix. And um, on top of that, we are given uh, plenty of prescriptions from lifestyle brands about how to behave, right? To optimize our life, um, to work out 30 minutes in the morning and 30 minutes in the afternoon and make sure you're the best parent during pandemic and read these hundred books during the pandemic because you're sheltered in place and now be the best teacher for your kid. Okay. That is on top of the global scale of anxiety that we're dealing with. The antidote is, is, is to set that aside every morning just for five minutes and receive Jesus's Lordship and grace in your life that after you meet him, there is nothing you can accomplish that is greater than what he has already accomplished. Mm-hmm. And to, to pause uh, in that and to just sit in that will actually strangely activate you in, in new ways. It'll all of a sudden help you respond to your work with a level of gratitude instead of stress. It'll help you understand your child and their importance instead of your own self-importance because you don't have anything to prove. You now get to just go to work. And, 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 and I, I think grace is the most surprising and scandalous um, attitude and uh, piece of news to provide our world right now because our world's obsessed with, with, with proving yourself and optimizing your life. Yeah, I, that's, that's so true. Like I, I, one of my idols for that, right, is Elon Musk, that he's got everything – measured down to like 15 minute increments and then works 80 hours a week. And I'm like, I thought about trying that one time and and then I'm just, anyway, that's its own story. But, but isn't it incredibly arrogant speaking as a guy who just tried to tell you that he tried to replicate the guy who (laughs) runs two companies, three or whatever it is now. Like it is incredibly arrogant to think that we can tackle everything. And yet 
that's where that's where this dilemma is so hard is because yeah. all of yeah. these things are vitally important. Yes. And we do want to uh, we do want to work towards the good of all of these things. But I, I do I can't help but think like as you're describing this, right, is to think about uh, Bruce Lee's uh, great wisdom, you know, in his martial <laughs> yeah. art. Right. Like be like water. And that's right. what that's what spending that time with Jesus in the morning before you start your day and whenever I think you got to you got to take breaks. I got to take breaks. Right. Yeah. Is that you you can accomplish so much more if you're able to just sort of flow through the day as the as the spirit leads you and um, trust that he is actually working. He cares about these issues more than you do. Number one, yeah. he, you know, yeah. and so. If he's at work in all of us, yeah. we have to trust that that his people and his work will actually uh, prevail, and that your I love your your local work that we yeah. can simply focus on what we're doing in the moment right now today. Uh, man, I need to hear that. I need to hear. Did, so thank did, you for that. <laughs> no, did did you guys read that story? Um, I think it was last year, maybe twenty eighteen. About the, uh, it was in the New York Times about the guy who ignored the news for like he just shut off the news. I did, did you read, read that. Yeah. Did you read this? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it there there was a harsh reaction to that, and part of the reaction to him turning off the so this guy lived in seclusion, shut off the internet, didn't subscribe to newspapers, his phone was completely devoid of any news. And people were, you know, uh, obviously like woke Twitter and stuff was really mad at him because they were like, how are you going to know about the issues? But, you know, that article ended. I don't know if you remember this, like painting a picture of what this guy did every day. Now, he was afforded certain luxuries in the sense that he was like retired and there there are certain Mm -hmm. things that he has that other people do not have. And I totally affirm that. However, he stewarded his privilege, if you want to call it that, in kind of an interesting way to shut off the news. And at the end, you know, he spends most of his day cleaning up a little like reservoir, like in his neighborhood. And there's times where I think maybe that guy is doing more good because he has rejected the onslaught and just taken responsibility is the word he's taken mm-hmm. responsibility for his local community um, on one level, an environmental level. Mm-hmm. And he's trusting, uh, you know, and this would be the Christian twist on it is that if, when, if, and when we take responsibility for our local communities uh, and, and our local spaces at whatever level we can, we then trust the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of other people uh, to do their work in their local spaces. And so I love, you know, Andy Stanley has, has that great line where he's like, do for one, what you wish you could do for all. And I think that has discipleship implications. And I think it has work implications, parenting implications, um, a really beautiful idea to say, Hey, what if we did shut off some of the noise? Doesn't mean we're not going to get to work, but maybe you could take care of that reservoir. Maybe you could take care of that slice, you know, serve on the school board and that's your thing or coach your kid's soccer team and you're going to be okay with that. But, but see, only grace would allow you to be that free. Mm. Only grace, which says you have nothing to prove, nor do you need money, nor do you need success, nor do you need accolades. Only grace would afford yourself the kind of life where you could be at peace living in that way. And I'm not saying I do live that way. I'm just saying (laughs) I think the grace of Jesus has opened the door to me to possibly live that way. 
And I just don't see another route other than the gospel being to go back to your question about the antidote to see it as the healing agent, the balm that we can put on an anxious, tired and like grossly depressed generation is going to be this grace that says you are enough. You do not need to prove yourself. Um, So commit to this work that you can do. Yeah. You know, I, I think I've seen a lot of people hear that message and uh, I mean, Jesus kind of described these kind of people in the uh, parable of the sower. They hear that kind of a message, though, and they think, okay, how can I grab onto this grace so that I can then use it to be more successful? Yeah. Like, how, can, how, can I, how can I accept this message that I, that I don't have anything more to prove so that I can then, like you were talking about earlier, yeah, I know you're talking about actually me. be more successful. <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. That's um, that. That to me though is like I even think Jesus has grace for that, yes. which is even more profound. Yeah, that he would, that when he could write off, you know, all of us um, who are who are pastors and. And, and profiting in any way off of his message, he actually has grace for that too. Mm-hmm. And I actually like, if there's pastors listening who have wrestled with that, I've been there and I, I just want them to know like, yeah, that Jesus covers even that. And he proves that by the way, through appointing apostles and entrusting them with his Holy spirit. And that has not changed. That model has not changed till now. He actually is able to, um, with profound generosity, give away his mission to fools like us. And he, he graciously and sovereignly and intentionally did that. Mm-hmm. And so that's another grace that we get to receive yeah. every day. I tell you what, there's a, I, I've got a personal story on this one. I was, a, I was a, on staff at a church where the pastor who'd been there for a long time left New guy comes in. This is his very first senior pastor position. And within the span of about a year, the church went from like 250 people down to 30. Mm. And you look back at something like that and go, how in the world could God let something like that happen? Mm. Like at some point, our, our utilitarian side kicks in and says, isn't that a bad thing? Like yeah. that did harm to people. Why did God let that happen? Mm-hmm. And looking back at though, in hindsight now, I, th- I think I've, I've learned a little bit of a different perspective on that. We look at that and say the, the pastor that came in and, and did some things that drove the, the people out of the church did something wrong. Hmm. And we just mm-hmm. leave it at that. But yeah. thinking about it though, the the people that left that church, if I look at where they're at now, they're out doing stuff. I mean, it was almost like a diaspora where where mm. people were distributed yeah. and dispersed yeah. throughout the entire, really the entire world. I mean, they're they're all over the world right now, and they're doing things that I don't know that they would have been doing had mm-hmm. that not happened. Also, I look at the way that uh, this first time senior pastor has now grown since then. Yep. And it's apparent that even in his blundering through the first couple of years of being a senior pastor, that God's done a work in his life. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And so it's easy for us to sit and judge somebody who's, say, who's, who's doing bad things or they're 
misappropriating grace to try to manipulate it for their own advantage. Um, but we're so often unaware of the grace that God has and the work that God's doing in their lives in the middle of the junk that they're doing. Yeah, that, well, so I'm thinking about the book of Genesis as you're saying that story and the closing summary line that Joseph delivers in Genesis 50, 20, you know, where he says, yeah, yeah. you, this is something you meant for evil, but God intended it for good in the saving of many lives. And I think uh, that churches, when they, when they fall apart, quote unquote, actually there's an opportunity as it's falling apart uh, for grace to enter in and redeem and quote unquote, save many lives to quote Genesis 50, 20, not all pastors and people involved in churches that deconstruct uh, embrace that and follow that. Not all, not all stories end that way because people continually reject God over a long period of time. But we actually have a similar story. We had, we had a neighboring church a couple of years ago that, that fell apart. And many of those members came into our church when they, um, when that church closed its doors, they're some of our best members. There's mm-hmm. some of our board members, some of our key serving leaders and they, it was weird. It was like, as that, you know, it was a, such a kingdom thing. Like as that seed died, it actually like grew up a new tree within our church. And you just, I, I, I you know, my theology actually, it might be a little different than yours. We can argue about it. it doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, God really shows his <laughs> grace in the midst of evil. But my theology would be, man, God would have desired that church to succeed. Sin rotted out that church, but God is not afraid of sin. And God actually will just get in and take that sin and go, I'm going to rework that evil. I didn't make that evil. I didn't create that evil, but I will grab it, retool it, plant it into some good soil and, and, and watch it do something it could not have done previous. And I think that's a beautiful picture of grace. Man, I feel like uh, Stephen Furtick's church should be standing up clapping. That, what, 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 well said, man. Well said. That's great. I love it. Okay, so last question. It's a bit of tongue-in-cheek, um, but it, you know, you, it can't go unnoticed that we've called ourselves Daily Growth. Did we make a mistake? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Um, no, no, no. That's what, you know, I, I, I'm actually, I, I loved, um, that you guys reached out, but you know, growth, like it is a word to think about. And I think that that, and it's a word to redeem. It's a word that you guys are redeeming because, um, yeah, like I write about in the book, I think growth has become like this idol in, in this weird way where, we believe everything that grows um, is good. And, and, and we talk about like, yeah, healthy things grow, but man, I just think about like how many other terrible things grow too. You know, I, yeah. I, I use that in the book of like how cancer grows or bacteria grows, like evil spreads as quickly as good, but to redeem what growth really is, um, is, is the work we have ahead of us, isn't it? It's like, mm-hmm. man, we to- we totally have so much work to do to grow disciples. And um, I just love hearing anybody who's, who's down for that. You guys didn't make a mistake at all. You guys are redeeming the word. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. Just- well, I think the, I think the key distinction is 
your motivation for growth? Are you growing in an attempt to gain more? Hmm. Or are you trying to, uh, like we referenced with Bonhoeffer earlier, devote yourself to Christ and allow him to produce the growth in you? Yeah. And yeah. I think this is summed up in a, a quote that I love from Brennan Manning. Uh, I just pulled it up. Uh, he said, all that is not the love of God has no meaning for me. I can truthfully say that I have no interest in anything but the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. If God wants it to, my life will be useful through my word and witness. If he wants it to, my life will bear, th- bear fruit through my prayers and sacrifices. But the usefulness of my life is his concern, not mine. Yeah. And we get yeah. so bent out of shape trying to make our lives something. And I think we forget that when it comes to Christian growth, daily growth, God is the one who produces the growth. It's Absolutely. not something that we force into existence. Yep. And that's where, like, I don't know, the most mature people that I know and the people that I really consider mentors and, and look up to, they're, they're actually not people who have, like, ascended a kind of, like, spiritual knowledge or anything like that. They're actually people who have descended into the depths of grace. And um, I think that the work of discipleship is not climbing the ladder. Uh, it's, it's, it's the person who goes back first, <laughs> you know, it's, those are the people I admire most. They're the people like, and that, that quotes really, really good. I've, de- I've definitely read that before from Manning. Like um, it's an obsession with the cross and the love of God that the people we admire most are so certain about that and go back to that first all the time uh, that Mm -hmm. they tend to live out of that going back and they're not climbing a kind of like programmatic ladder or like, or, or it's ascending to a spiritual knowledge that that's kind of like Gnosticism almost, or like, Mm -hmm. you know, even contemporary behavioralism that's like self-help and stuff is trying to get you to ascend. And I think the gospel is the great descent into the depths of like God's grace, God's love, the heart of Jesus on the cross and the more and more we go back to that every day, I think that's where the gospel bears fruit in our life and, and where we grow. I don't think we grow by attaining more and more, um, yeah, knowledge or more and more, um, yeah, good behavior. I really do believe that the people I see and admire most, it's just like Manning said, it's like, I'm obsessed with God's love. I go back to God's grace every day, trusting him to bear fruit. I think that's really beautiful. That's great. I, it, you know, I gotta, I gotta mention, I was going to try to end, but I gotta mention because you're talking about this, um, it, 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 that I, I think is still capital S sin at work in our lives. So we're trying to, we're trying to get more, 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 get better. Yeah. In fact, um, it, it's, uh, in fact, one of our guests recently brought it up, uh, Gerhard Ferde, who's a Lutheran theologian. That's why he describes the fall is not actually a fall down into sin, but a fall up. And it, that was humanity's thinking that it was big enough to assume the position of God. And so I love, I love mm. this description of descending down into grace. That is such a beautiful 
uh, image uh, that you've painted there. So anyway, they, I just had to mention that well, he's, it's, he's definitely no, worth looking into. <laughs> it's who I think it's who Jesus rewards in the gospel stories. You know, I, I, I'm kind of been obsessed with the story of the Syrophoenician woman, the Canaanite woman, you know, who's like, even the dogs get the scraps and he's like, your faith has made you well, your daughter's well. I mean, he rewards a kind of, yeah, humility is not even the right word because that's been so Christianized. It's like humiliation. It's like, yeah. it's this complete prostrate before Jesus. Yeah. Like I have nothing, you have everything. And he looks at that and he's like, you're on the right, you're headed in the right direction. And I just am like, that's, that's the, that would be the goal of my life is to, is to continue to stay in that, in that posture before him. Mm. Yeah. Man, that's good. That's, uh, and, and that's ultimately where our, our road as we follow him leads, is it not to the cross of the yeah. ultimate humiliation where yeah. or, or Christ yes. did that before God and, and every, anyway. Um, Chris, thank you so much. I want to be sensitive to your time. I'm sure we could continue to talk for hours. This has been great. Um, obviously, uh, uh, people can go to Amazon and anywhere books are sh- sold, published by Baker. Uh, where can people go to find out more about you and follow your work? Um, I, I think the the best is I, I'm on social media, so I, I love to interact with people there. Um, Twitter and, and Instagram at, at Chris Nye and love, love talking with people about what they're reading, what they're enjoying. So, um, and I try to post there pretty regularly. Great. And we'll have links to all of that in the show notes, uh, in the interest of not growing, uh, you know, or wanting more growth. Anyway, I can't help but point out the irony, uh, yeah. but seriously, you guys should go, uh, check him out again, not to make him feel better or inflate, but, uh, you're doing some great stuff. And so I, you know, it's always great to follow great people. So anyway, thank you so much for, uh, all that you're doing. It's encouraging. Thanks guys. How can you create a lifestyle of discipleship? Most Christians think discipleship is a program or a few practices thrown in at the beginning or end of the day. But we want to help you create a lifestyle where walking with Jesus throughout the day is not only possible, but natural. And we have a tool that's going to help you do just that. It's called the Daily Growth Journal. It's a guided journal that's going to help you become secure in your identity with God and authentically walk with Him in your daily life. Growing daily in your walk with Christ is possible if you cultivate a lifestyle of discipleship. And the Daily Growth Journal will help you do just that. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Daily Growth Discipleship Podcast. To find out more about Chris's work, check out chrisnye.co. If you like what you've heard this week, give us a review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast player you use. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to keep up to date with everything happening at Daily Growth Discipleship, go to dailygrowthdiscipleship.com and subscribe for free. You can also subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Spotify.